0: Let's pray first, and then then we'll get into the message. Father, thank You. Thank You for our time together this morning. And as we sit here in the comfortable environment of this church facility and the safety of all that we know, and Father, we're mindful of all the things going on around the world that are, Father, just uh unconcerting, that um the danger of those in Haiti and our Friends and family that are there, and for all the hundreds and thousands of people that put themselves at risk every day to do your work, we are mindful of them and their courage, Father, that they have. We pray for their protection, the safety, home, especially for those that we know that are there. We pray for those children that are been trapped in that cave, and that we're, we're thankful for the operation that's going on now that has rescued some and. We pray that the weather continues to um, abate and that uh, the waters don't rise again and make it even more difficult. Father, we just pray also for just the fact that um, we have a God that loves us and cares for us and, Father, wants the best for us and that we're in your hands, and we just thank you for that. We pray as we open up your word just now that you would help us to glean from it uh, the truths that you would have us to learn and to put into action in our lives that we might be closer in thought and deed to Your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in the book of Haggai. Haggai is one of what theologians call the minor prophets. Do you know why they call them minor? Short books. Short books. Not because they're insignificant, but because they're just shorter. That's why in four, I can do it in four weeks. One of the contemporaries of Haggai was Zechariah. They appeared on the scene and wrote about the same time. It's approximately 18 years after the return from captivity. Haggai appears on the scene first, and then Zechariah appears a few months later, and he continues on the scene even after Haggai disappears, at least as far as we're concerned, as far as his writings. So let's set the stage for Haggai's writings. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar had defeated Judah, and Jerusalem in about 587 B.C. He carried off Daniel, the prophet, and most of the people into Egypt. The temple had been destroyed. Most of the people had been taken into captivity in Babylon. But the Lord never forgets His people and He never forgets His promises. And so in His sovereignty, the Lord raises up a Persian king by the name of Cyrus, And Cyrus destroyed the Chaldean Empire, and in the year 536 B.C., Cyrus gave an order that the Jewish people in exile could return home to rebuild the temple. But before we get to that, let's think about this. Do you remember how long they were in captivity in Babylon? Seventy years. Most of the original people that had been taken into captivity had actually passed on. So the people that were there knew really nothing but captivity. That's all they really knew in life. In many ways, they had grown accustomed to this life. They were comfortable with the way things were. The reason that they were there was why. Why were they in Babylon? Why were they defeated? Punishment for their disobedience. And yet their faith has not really been renewed yet. Sometimes as I read the Old Testament, it's almost like a book of circles when you think about it. People would be excited about their faith, about God. They'd obey and they'd be blessed. And then what would happen? They'd fall away. They would disobey. They would be persecuted or chastised or disciplined. And that cycle is repeated over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. And as I thought about that, I thought about that, you know, can you see that cycle in our country? You can if you think about it. When you think about our history and our founders, it's obvious that there were times in our country where men and women were pursuing God more fervently. And there were many faithful men and women of the kingdom and then we would fall away. And God and His sovereignty during various times in our history would bring a revival to our land. I just went back in history and just kind of looked. We've had several revivals in our history. In the 1700s, you had Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. You know those names. In the 1800s, Charles Finney. In the late 1800s, the Businessmen's Revival started by a prayer meeting by Jeremiah Lampier with six people. Before it was over, as many as a million people were added to the church. You had the Welsh Revivals in the early 1900s. A name you might remember is Billy Sunday during that time period. Then in the mid 1900s, you had evangelist Billy Graham. You had Bill Bright with Campus Crusade. They had a big impact on America. But as you think about those things, it's been a while. We really have not had a really good revival in our country in recent years. But this common human tendency, this cycle, and this is what was going on with the people and the Bible as well. And so it is with the period of time that Haggai is writing. They've been in captivity for many years. They've grown cold in some ways in things of the Lord, but the Lord hasn't forgotten them. I want you to turn back to the book of Ezra. In the book of Ezra, there's a lot of historical that tells and explains what's going on here. You might as well put a finger there or put a marker there because we're going to come back to it in a minute. But I want to read the first five verses of Ezra chapter 1. In Ezra chapter 1, beginning in the first verse, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Ezra one five says that the family heads of Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord. If you go on down to chapter 2, verse 64, we're told exactly how many of people's hearts were stirred. Chapter 2, verse 64 says... Forty two thousand three hundred and sixty people that God moved to return and begin rebuilding the temple. Now I want you to remember that who this is who he's writing to. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But this is the people that Haggai is writing to, these forty two thousand people. Haggai was speaking to the special people that God moved on their hearts to return and take on the task of rebuilding the temple. He's not talking to the unfaithful, but to the faithful men and women of God who had returned. It's important to remember that most of the people didn't rise to the response. It was a select few in number, and that's going to come to be important when we look at the application. So as I said, put a bookmark here and then go back to Haggai. We'll come back and look at some more of this in a minute. I want to read. begin by reading Haggai 1-4 through 4 and see what Haggai has to say to this group of people. Haggai 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shiltel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? We'll stop there for now. Sometimes Bible scholars have a hard time figuring out when things were written, but that's not the case here. We're told exactly down to the day when this came to be, what when Haggai said this. We don't have to try to figure it out. It says that he said it in the second year of Darius the king on the first day of the sixth month. As a side note, it was common for the prophets to date their prophecies according to the reign of kings. The prophets before the captivity always tied their dates to a king of Israel or a king of Judah. The prophets like Haggai who came after the captivity tied theirs to Gentile kings because there was no longer any kings in Israel or Judah. So history tells us that this date is 520 B.C., when the word of the Lord came to Haggai. It's important to remember that he's not speaking his words, but it says he's speaking the Lord's words. He tells us the message was to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltel, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak you go back and figure out who these people were, Zerubbabel is the grandson of Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah when Nebuchadnezzar came in and carted everybody off. So his grandson Zerubbabel has now been appointed to be the governor of Judah. Joshua was the son of Joseph, the high priest at the time of the invasion. So he was the religious head. So you have this word of the Lord coming through Haggai to the religious leader, and the political or civic leader. If we were to go back and study history, we would find that these words come about about 18 years after Cyrus had given the call for them to return and begin to rebuild the temple. If you go back and read as Ezra, you will remind us that when they first came back, they were enthused about rebuilding and they were all excited, but they met a lot of opposition and then the work had stopped. Several years now have passed. People have gone on with their lives. They're not giving much thought to the task of rebuilding the temple. And Haggai comes on to the scene basically with a rebuke. And as we look at this rebuke, we're going to see what the problem is, the result of the problem, and the solution to the problem. That's what we're going to be looking at. What the problem is, the result of the problem, and the solution to the problem. So let's remind ourselves of what the temple was. Was the temple to them what our church building is to us? It's not a trick question. (laughs) It's not really. Think about, you know, now in this dispensation, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They were not. Where was God's presence in the Holy of Holies, in the inter-sanctuary of the temple? They went there to present their sacrifices and to commune with God. And this, this was a void in their life, not having the temple rebuilt. They had been in a foreign land. They didn't have the temple. They weren't doing sacrifices. So there was a void in their religious life. So the temple was very, very important to them. So this task of rebuilding the temple was very important to God. So what's the problem? The problem, flatly speaking, is just disobedience. The people had been given the task of rebuilding the temple. They had come back, started it, and then quit. Come back, go back again to Ezra, and we'll see this clearly. Go to Ezra 4 this time. Ezra chapter 4. I'll read again the first four verses of Ezra chapter 4. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel Joshua and the rest of the heads of fathers, the houses in Israel, said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then if you skip on down to verse 24, it says, Then the work on the house of God stopped. So we know by Haggai's words here in our text this morning that this did not please God. That was the problem. They were tasked to rebuild the temple and they hadn't done it. They quit. And it's been many years later. And what was their excuse? In verse 2 of Haggai, it lists their, their excuse. It says, these people say the time has not yet come. I thought it was interesting that God said these people, these people say. Normally, he refers to his children as my children or something to that nature. Here he says these children, these people and I thought that was interesting because when my children had did something bad, I would say I'd talk to Terry and I'd say, your children did this or your children. Now, God wasn't trying to disown them, but I think he was making a point that he was displeased with them. Haggai reveals the problem and he calls them on their excuses. And he's a word from the Lord to them. What Haggai is going to say is going to hurt. And I suggest to you this morning that it's going to be hurtful to some of us if we're honest. The people blame it on timing. They say it's not the right time. In a sense, I think they're suggesting that it was not the Lord's will. If you're saying it's not the time to do it, then it's not the Lord's will that I do this. And I'm thinking, you know, that's a little dangerous for us. But do we do that? Do we sometimes incur hardship and stuff and we think, okay, it must not be the Lord's will to do this or that right now? Have you ever used that excuse? Have you heard someone use that excuse? I've heard many preachers actually use that excuse when they're leaving a church, and you know, there's a lot of hardship and controversy going on, and they'll leave the church and go on to what they think is greener pastures, and they'll—it's not the Lord; it's the Lord's will that I go here or I go there and do that. And I think we need to be careful. It may be, but I think we need to be careful using that as an excuse to do something we want to do. I'm thankful that our pastor, Steve and Michelle, didn't do that. Because I've heard them talk about the hardship they had at this church in Lakeside when they took over as a young man. He incurred a lot of opposition and hardship. And I think it went through his mind that maybe this isn't the Lord's timing. But he didn't do that. He stuck it out. He fought through it. And we're all the benefiters of that. But I think we need to be careful. We need to know what the Lord's will is. And when we don't know the Lord's will, we need to seek it. We don't need to make excuses. And I think that's what these people were doing. They were making excuses. They ran into a lot of opposition. Things got tough and they quit. And Haggai, by his words, is going to rebuke them of this excuse. He's going to pull off the band-aid and reveal the sore spot in their lives. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 again. It said, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, and he said, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? What's the rebuke? What do you think he means by paneled houses? Some versions say sealed houses. I think that's part of it. But as I researched the words, I was just talking to John about talking about words. As I researched that word paneled houses or sealed houses. I kept coming across uh, where it was used in a couple of different places, but um, one of the places is 1 Kings chapter 6. There's a passage that uses almost the same verbiage and words. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15 to you. This is a passage that's talked about where Solomon is building the temple, the one that was destroyed, the beautiful temple that Solomon built. And it says in verse 14 of 1 Kings 6, So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house inside with boards of cedar from the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. Most commentators believe that what this is talking about is the elaborateness of their houses. They were putting in things that weren't normal. That you know They were spending a lot of time and energy and money building these beautiful houses, lining them with wood of cypress and cedar. And Haggai says, and the Lord's house lays undone. You have finished and built these beautiful houses, and yet the Lord's house is undone. I thought as I read this, you know, that it probably wasn't an easy task these people had migrated back to this land and basically had to start all over again. And I thought about how much work that would have been for them to do. And the thought struck me that people can do a whole lot when they set their minds to it, can't they? You think about what man can accomplish when he sets his mind to it. It wouldn't, couldn't have been easy. But have you noticed that, that people have a way of doing what's important to them and getting it done People can overcome a lot of obstacles and difficulty when it's something they really care about. And it was evident what they cared about, wasn't it? They cared about their own houses, not the Lord's house, the temple. So this is a rebuke about misplaced priorities. In fact, I titled the lesson, Putting First Things First. That's the message of this section of Scripture. And does that apply to us today? What about as a a country? Think about it as a country. I thought back, you know, there was a time in our country when church and spiritual lives were more important than today. When almost everything was closed on Sundays. When families didn't have to make a choice between church and a soccer tournament. Or a swim meet. When people respected the local church. When Christian morals were something to strive after. When honesty and purity were virtues that people aspired to. But remember, this is not just about our secular country. This is written to God's people. So I'm always careful when I study myself and when I teach that we don't just point the finger. We always need to examine our own lives. Maybe there was a time in your life when you had regular devotions and prayer, and now you don't. How many days go by that you don't have a quiet time? Compare that to the time you spend watching TV. Maybe you used to be involved in ministry or serving in various ways, and now you don't. Maybe you used to go to Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, and now you don't. Misplaced priorities come in many fashions. We can all get sidetracked by the concerns of living in this world, and that is exactly what happened to the children of Judah. What they were doing was not bad in itself. Is it bad to build a house? No. What was wrong about it? was wrong because they did that in lieu of doing something God had asked them to do. The sin was doing it at the expense of neglecting the other. I think we all need this rebuke at times. I love the words of the old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus. You know the words. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have His than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by His nail-pierced hand. Than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything the world affords today. That's the attitude that we should have. But truthfully, we don't always have that, do we? Well, the people of Judah were struggling with this. And Haggai had a word of rebuke from God to them. So what's the problem? The problem is misplaced priorities. They made excuses. They procrastinated. But it all boiled down to misplaced priorities. They were having trouble putting first things first. Let's go on to verses 5-11 through and we'll see the result of this misplaced priorities. Beginning in verse 5 of Haggai 1, it says, "...now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough." You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Haggai tells them to stop and think, to reflect, to consider their ways. In other words, examine the results of your actions. God is saying to them through Haggai you are sowing seeds, you're tending gardens, your fields, you're making clothes, you're busy working, trying to give yourself all the good things of life, and what's the result? You never have enough. You're never full. You're still thirsty. You're not warm. You're putting your money into bags with holes. Is any of the things they're doing in itself sin? No. The problem is their preoccupation with them. The fact that these things that they were doing were taking them away from the spiritual things that they should have been doing. Does that remind you of any New Testament Scriptures? I thought of Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus talks about... uh, Well, turn there. Let's read it. Matthew chapter 6. We'll read verses 25-33. This is the passage where he's talking about not being anxious. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what will you eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they Therefore, do not be anxious saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Is it wrong to work and provide food and clothing and housing? No. It's the preoccupation and the worry at the neglect of doing what God calls us to do. It's actually kind of a paradox in the Christian life. What do we want? We want joy. We want peace. We want our families cared for. But if we make that our sole mission in life, it usually doesn't happen. God says, seek ye first these spiritual things and all the rest shall be added to us. It's kind of hard to in an earthly way to correlate those things. But it's a paradox. God says that I'll provide all these things if you put me first. There's a verse in Second Chronicles 1 that I came across a few years ago that I was preparing a lesson that really had an impact on me. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. That's an amazing verse. The Lord's eyes roam throughout the earth seeking to find someone who's given their whole heart to Him. And what will He do? It says He strongly supports that person. In other words, He blesses them abundantly. But there's a condition. The condition is that they have to have given their whole heart to Him. What's that mean? That means that they've put Him first. In all of their life. When a, God, when a person puts God first, he blesses them, but when a Christian misplaces their priorities and goes off on all these selfish endeavors, then sometimes God, in his displeasure, disciplines that children and withholds the very things that we are striving for. That's what's happening with the people of Judah. They set aside the work of the Lord and went after pursuing their own agenda. And let's all be honest, don't we sometimes do that? Americans spend a lot of times going after the material things of the world. I think these verses are very enlightening. They were pursuing the good life, and what happened? I put in my notes, God happened. They brought it home, and I blew it away. That's a strong verse. They brought it home. They worked hard and they brought it home and God blew it away. He affected the results of their work and effort in their eyes negatively. They worked and brought home money and put it in bags with holes in it. What does that mean? Have you ever felt like you were working and working and working and it wasn't... Doing you any good? It seemed like it was just all dissipating. The car broke down. The refrigerator went on the blink. Your son needed to borrow money. And before you know it, everything you brought home was gone. It's like you put it in a bag with holes. This verse teaches that God sometimes intervenes specifically in our lives in a way that to us would seem to be negative. That's not something we talk about much in the world today, is it? If you did, most people would not like the implication of that, that God causes natural disasters, that God causes those kind of negative impacts to you. How would that go over with your neighbor? It's a non-Christian, not very well, would it? But the truth is, God is a God of judgment and discipline as much as he is a God of love and mercy. Judge and discipline is as much a part of His character as any other attribute. In fact, love is not love at all if there's no discipline involved. We could spend a lot of time defending this position that God causes things like droughts and calamities, but I'm just going to read one verse. The Bible's full of them. Isaiah 45, 7 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity, I am the Lord that does all these. That's Isaiah 45, 7. The word is very clear here, and nothing else really needs to be said. These people were being disobedient, and God in His sovereignty in this instant chose to withhold blessing from them to call them into obedience. I have to admit that as I thought about this and the application of this, I thought about the path our country was on. Generally speaking, as a nation, we're all recognized that the road seems to be on a downward spiral. The self-centeredness and the neglect of God is very prevalent throughout our culture. But remember what I said earlier. The words of Haggai were not to the secular country. They were to God's people. The words that he is speaking are I think today, it's to us. It's to, not to the secular country. It's to His people, which would be His church. So what are we seeing? We've seen the problem. We've seen their lack of their obedience to rebuild the temple, their excuses, their procrastination, their selfish desires to pursue their own agenda. We've seen the result. The hand of God was against them. The very things that they were after were evading them, not because of their slothfulness or their ineffectiveness, but because the hand of God was set against them, withholding it from them. They worked, brought home wages, they disappeared, they labored in the fields, God withheld the rain. He was disciplining them. So now the important part, the solution. I want to look at verses 7 and 8 again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills, bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. What is the solution? To disobedience. It's obedience, right? I think it's interesting, though, that he didn't just say, get to work. He was very specific. He said, start building, but he broke it down and even listed the first step. Go up into the hills, cut down some timber, and bring it down and start building. He made it simple for them. He gave them the very first step to take. Get to work, but the first thing you need is go get some wood. As I thought about this is from an application standpoint, I thought that, you know, if there's something in your spiritual life that needs to be reprioritized, this may be speaking to someone here. Do you need to have a more consistent quiet time? What do you need to do? What's the first step? You might need to set aside a time. Do you need to get back to work on memorizing scripture? You used to do it, but you haven't done it anymore. Well, maybe you need to go buy a Rolodex and start writing them down. Figure out what it is that's not the priority that you need to have in your spiritual life and write down the first step. What is the first step and go do it. Get the ball rolling. That's what the Lord is telling them to do. And I think he's teaching us to do the same thing. The Lord through Haggai was challenging them. And through these same words, I think he's challenging us to put first things first. And he's telling us to put a plan in action when we consider what it is that we need to do and to get to work doing it. Well, what was their response? Verse, section of verses 12 through 15 tell us. We haven't read that yet. Let's read um, verses 12 through 15. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. What was their response? They did it. They went to work. You know, when you read the Old Testament and read the prophets, many of them had a very hard and frustrating job. Many of them prophesied and spoke the words of the Lord, and many times a lot of the people did not respond positively. I was thinking back. Amos prophesied, and he got a response. It was a negative one. People told him to go back to his own people in Jerusalem. Jeremiah prophesied, and the people put him in a hole in the ground, in a cistern. A lot of Isaiah's message was rejected. And that was the case with many of the Old Testament prophets, but that was not the case with Haggai. Haggai saw a positive result within a very short period of time, just a matter of a couple weeks. And the people were busy again rebuilding the temple. As I thought about this, I wondered, why was this? What was it that caused the people to respond positively? What was the reason that Haggai's message was received and acted upon? All this had made them more... What I think, first of all, is that the Lord did it, ultimately. The God caused the, the response to be positive. But I think there's some specific reasons that the people responded. First, I think God had been preparing them through His discipline. God had been preparing them. He had driven them to their knees. They were tired of laboring, the drought, the trials... All of this had made them more open and receptive to the words of God that Haggai was bringing to them. And, and as I think about that, isn't that true in life? That sometimes you, people have to be brought to their knees and have to have a lot of struggles and hardship before we figure out the priorities are in the wrong place. What happens when everything is going great in life? Get ready. <laughs> Get ready. I think you can sometimes get complacent, can't you? You can sometimes get prideful. Uh, Even in a church's life, when there's never any hardship or controversy or anything, you can become complacent, you can become prideful, and sometimes it takes that hardship in a country, in a people, in individuals, to really get their priorities back where they need to be. And I think that's one of the things that God used for the people, and that's why they responded. Another reason, I think, is that the people respected Haggai himself as God's messenger. Verse 12 says, The people obeyed the voice of the Lord in the words of the Haggai prophet. We don't know a lot about Haggai, but verse one tells us all we need to know. The word of the Lord came to them through Haggai. Haggai, the people knew him as a prophet and they respected him as a prophet. They believed the message because they believed the messenger. Do you think in today's churches the significance of preaching is understood and rated as highly as it should be in general? Not talking about here at Lakeside, but in general? I don't think it is. You can tell that by the conversations that people have as they walk out of the church talking about preacher, you know, they might talk about him as if it was an after-dinner speech, you know, I oh, wasn't quite on target today, or he wasn't as good as usual, or he went five minutes over, or they'll just by the comments you can tell that they don't hold the view of preaching and the high esteem as being God's Word, and therefore they don't respect the messenger the way they would. And I think these people did. They did that. They understood that Haggai was a messenger of the Lord and they respected him and listened to him. Which leads to another reason I see the, why the people responded positively, and that is that they were a listening people who feared the Lord. Verse 12 says that they feared the Lord. They didn't just hear the Lord and go about their way, they respected and feared the Lord to the point of obedience. How would you describe the fear of the Lord to someone? In a few short words, how would you say fear? Would you say afraid? Could be respect, honor, reverence, obedience. obedience. It's all mixed into that. There's a lot that encompasses that word. But when you think about the fear of the Lord, I think of a reverential awe. I think of reverence for sure, but God is, we should be in awe of God, His power his might, his wisdom, all should put us in fear in the sense of a reverential awe of who he is, especially in light of who we are. We should have such a reverential awe. In fact, the word awe or awesome is a word that should be, in my opinion, reserved for God. I have a pet peeve. My wife will tell you that I get upset when people call pizza awesome (laughs) or, you know, or, oh, you're awesome. God is awesome. That word, I think, is overused in our society. One of the main reasons the people listened and obeyed when Haggai rebuked them is because they feared the Lord. And the question is, do we fear the Lord today? I think there are people who do, but I think there's many who don't. But God had prepared them by bringing hardship, and because they respected Haggai as a prophet, because they feared the Lord, but for these reasons, they obeyed. The governor, the high priest, and all the people obeyed and came to work on the house of the Lord. So in conclusion, this is an account of a people that had misplaced their priorities. The concerns and cares of the world and their own personal lives had taken first the driver's seat and God had been put in the back seat. So Haggai comes on the scene speaking the words of the Lord, rebuking them. Could have gone a different way, but it didn't. They listened to him, they responded, and they put the priorities back where it should be. So the challenge for me is, for us, is to put this this message, not let this message fall on deaf ears. If there's someone here this morning that knows in their heart that their priorities are not where they should be or used to be, then He's calling you to put first things first, to remember the work that He's called us to, to put His kingdom first and not let the busyness of life concern us to the point that we neglect His work. Haggai's message should remind us that if we do that, if we don't put God and His kingdom first, there's re- there are repercussions. We will not get what we want. We will not be satisfied. We will not have the kind of joy we want because the Lord will not set idly by and let us go down that road. He will do what it takes to bring his children back to where they need to be. He will cause our money bags to have holes in them. He will blow it away. So, let us be like Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the people who heard the rebuke. They considered their ways, they turned, and they obeyed. We too need to consider our ways and examine our lives. Think about where our priorities are, where our priorities should be. And if there's something we need to change, you take that first step. You might write it down and you make a plan and you start putting into action what you know that God wants you to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Haggai's message to the people of Judah and to the people here at Lakeside. Father, and to all your your children. Father, we acknowledge you as the sovereign one who deserves all glory. And Father, when we choose to become so involved with our own lives that we neglect spiritual things, your things, Father, that you would have us do, we plead for forgiveness and we ask that you help us to put our priorities back where they need to be. Help us all to not just hear these words and to point fingers, but to look inside our own hearts and, Father, make decisions based on honesty and the reality of our own lives. And may we be better and more like Your Son because of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.